This is an ABC podcast. Hey, how did you feel on Sunday, Arvo? About 4pm, winding down your weekend, getting mentally prepared for work. Were you maybe a little anxious, a bit overwhelmed? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, we're diving into the Sunday scaries. It sounds like a cartoon, actually a lot more serious. And frankly, still a bit raw for us to bring up on a Monday, which is why we're doing it now. Also coming up, most Australians won't need to isolate if you've got COVID from this Friday. It's a massive change. Does that mean the pandemic's coming to an end? First, though, hack. It's devastating. What Putin is doing is a strategy to wipe out Ukrainians off the face of the earth. And it's an act of genocide. On Triple J. You know, if you've lost track of what's happening in the war in Ukraine, it's time to catch up because over the past few days, things have really escalated. For the first time, Russia's been attacking Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, with missiles. Moscow says that was payback for a massive bridge being blown up, which it blames on Ukraine. Now, everyone's talking about nuclear war. What will Russia do next? In a bit, we're going to ask an expert some of your questions. But first, here's Serge Negus to bring you up to speed. That's the sound of a young Ukrainian woman videoing herself and describing her fear after hearing a missile fly right over her head. Then, another missile lands right next to her. Two major explosions in Kyiv right now. Another one. Maybe this one closer. You may remember us speaking to Julia Timoshenko earlier this year. She's been documenting the attacks on her socials, and it's been pretty non-stop for the last 24 hours. Another air raid. We're just sitting all in the corridor of the apartment. A bunch of cities in Ukraine are without any electricity, and they're saying that tonight there might be outage in the entire Ukraine. It's horrendous what, what, what has happened in Ukraine. Russians have sent over 80 cruise missiles at different cities in Ukraine, about 14 of those hitting, deliberately hitting critical infrastructure, uh, electricity, power generation. There are blackouts in many cities right now. So why this sudden escalation from Russia? Well, on Saturday, a truck exploded on a strategic road and rail bridge linking Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, causing the bridge to partially collapse. The Russians immediately blamed Ukraine, but Ukraine is yet to officially take responsibility. Now, The Crimean Peninsula, which was taken by Russia in 2014, holds symbolic value for the country and is key to sustaining its military operations in the south of Ukraine. Putin has opened the bridge uh, four years ago. It's a big uh, symbol of Russian imperialism um, and uh, that signifies reunification of, of Crimea with Russia. On top of that, the bridge itself is the longest bridge Russia has ever built and the longest in the whole of Europe. It was a $5.7 billion project and a symbol of Moscow's claim to Crimea. So it's safe to say the bombing really pissed Putin off. The central part of Kyiv, actually Russians have hit a playground uh, in the Shoshenko in, in Park next to the main building of the university. This is actually one of the most favorite playgrounds in Ukraine. This is where both of my kids grew up and uh, they also hit the pedestrian bridge uh, at, in, 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 near European Square, which is another central landmark in Ukraine. And many people got killed, many got wounded. 
Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says that Russia is trying to wipe Ukraine off the face of the earth, while Russia simply says that they are just taking revenge for an attack on the bridge. And Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Vasil Moroshnichenko, thinks that Putin is deliberately ordering an attack on civilian areas in an attempt to scare the people of Ukraine into submission. Well, the only purpose of that is to scare people, terrorize people. The only purpose of that, there's no military purpose for that. I mean, it's, it's only intimidation, it's more psychological pressure and, and, and a psyop at the civilians. And this is a war crime, uh, what Russians have done, and, and they will be held to an account. Pavlo lives in Kiev and he says that despite the new threats and devastation, locals are more determined than ever to keep fighting. I'm really sorry for losses for people, but uh, my confidence is uh, strong and my motivation actually. What it's also shown is Vladimir Putin's impotence. This attack won't change what's happening on the ground. And the truth of the matter is Ukraine right now is winning the war. So Ukrainians feel aggrieved at what's happened, but they feel more determined than ever to win this war and they have a lot of confidence. Why wouldn't they? So yeah. Despite the new attacks, things according to many analysts are still looking pretty good for Ukraine. But there's one elephant in the room that still has a lot of people worried, and that's Putin's threat to use tactical nukes. Now these aren't the giant mushroom cloud city busters that probably come to mind when you think of a nuclear weapon. Tactical nukes are much, much smaller. These things weren't built to destroy entire cities, but they are still ridiculously powerful and could practically evaporate an entire train station or military base. But defence editor of The Economist, Shashank Joshi, reckons it's still pretty unlikely. And this latest attack almost proves that. We're expecting some sort of retaliation from Russia. It's long been expected that Russia was holding this card in reserve. When I was asked about nuclear weapons, uh, what I've typically said is, bear in mind Russia has other ways of escalating. And here we see one of those ways. The last such attack was at the end of June. And what we've seen this morning is the biggest attack on the capital, and I think perhaps aerially across Ukraine, since the very first day of this conflict. Hack on Triple J. Serge Negus with that update. Let's get a bit more analysis on what's happening in Ukraine now. And with us is Associate Professor Matthew Sussex. He's with ANU's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. Hey, Matt, thanks very much for coming back on Hack. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, I reckon Russia will use a nuke and the West will have to send troops over. That's what a lot of people are saying. Let's get straight into it. Russia has made threats in the past. Things have seriously escalated. Could we see a nuclear war break out here? Well, look, I mean, the one problem with nuclear weapons is uh, that you can't uninvent the things. Um, They tend to... uh, Countries that have them tend to want to keep hold of them. And then you have some countries like Russia, uh, for which it's it's a kind of diplomatic weapon, if you like. So, look, if the uh, war were to go nuclear, you'd have to buy that Vladimir Putin is so enraged or so unhinged um, at his performance in Ukraine that he's prepared to basically let everyone fry Um, And I tend to think that's perhaps not very likely Um, and for perhaps an unusual reason, and and that is that Vladimir Putin is an immensely wealthy man and um, wealthy men tend to want to enjoy their wealth. Uh, And uh, in order to do that, you have to be alive. And I think, you know, in the case of a general nuclear war, the chances of Vladimir Putin surviving would be really, really small. Yeah, what would happen if Russia deployed nuclear weapons? Like, do we have any idea of what kind of retaliation we would see? 
Yeah, it depends what kind of uh, of nuclear weapon you Russia decided to use if it did so. Um, tactical nuclear weapons are militarily not very valuable at all um, in the Ukrainian theatre because the the front between uh, the Ukrainian forces and the Russian ones is is very long. So the Russians would have to use quite a few nuclear weapons. Um, their troops are not equipped to exploit nuclear environments uh, because there would be, you know, substantial amount of radioactive fallout that they'd have to deal with. Um, and then the international reaction would be huge. But, you know, let's say they did decide to uh, to, to launch a tactical nuclear strike, you know, whether it was a, against Ukrainian troops or, or perhaps on Kiev, uh, I think it would be pretty clear that NATO would get involved militarily. Uh, I don't think they would, in the first instance, use nuclear weapons themselves, but they would do things like, you know, uh, basically take out large amounts of uh, the Russian bomber fleet, large amounts of Russia's ability to project power, which would frankly cripple their conventional military. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Associate Professor Matthew Sussex, who's from ANU, about the war in Ukraine. What's going on? There's been some really serious developments over the past few days. Matt, what about Vladimir Putin? How's his leadership going? Because it's been a rocky few months in and out of Russia. Like We've seen all sorts of protests in Russia. Is he gaining in popularity or power or is he losing it? Well, I mean... In terms of, uh, of of just people around in Russia, some seven hundred thousand have fled the country uh, in response to the the mobilisation that Putin announced for for three hundred thousand people. Um, so th- there is a lot of popular discontent at, uh, at the prospect of going to fight. That said, um, uh, the Russians really haven't taken to the streets in huge numbers to protest the war. But the longer this drags on, and the more the failures start to mount up. It's going to be really difficult, I think, for Putin to find scapegoats. Um, He looks as though he's blaming the army. He's replaced the commander in Ukraine for, I think, the third or fourth time. Uh, Previously, he's blamed the intelligence services. And those are pretty powerful members of Russia's elite. And ultimately, it, it could potentially come to a time when those people say, well, we just don't want to be purged anymore. Um, and uh, we will take some action against the person who is behind these decisions. Does Ukraine still have the upper hand? Because over the past few months, there's been a bit of celebration about Ukraine retaking territory from Russia. Is that still the case? Oh, look, definitely it is the case. I think these strikes on uh, Ukrainian uh, population centres is an excellent example, a demonstration of that. Uh, Russia has shot between 400 and 700 million dollars worth of cruise missiles um, just yesterday at Ukraine uh, for the total benefit of 19 civilians killed uh, and 104 injured. Um, now that's horrendous and and it is a, a weapon of terror that Russia is using. But realistically, there's there's no strategic value whatsoever in that. And uh, Russia has been running out of these precision-guided munitions, which is what forced it to to turn to sort of artillery, you know, months ago. So uh, Putin is effectively shooting through his arsenal in an attempt to cow the Ukrainian people. Matt, there's been a bit of talk about Australia sending troops to Ukraine to help train Ukrainian recruits. Is that likely to happen? Oh, look, I think it's possible that uh, Australia would send troops to train Ukrainians. I'm not necessarily sure that would happen in Ukraine. Um, 
there are, you know, numerous reports of um, on the quiet uh, training being done by Western militaries in Ukraine itself, but the vast majority of it is happening in Poland and in the UK. So uh, if that happens, you'd expect probably that the Australian Armed Forces would follow a similar path because otherwise there'd be a potential for, for them to get into harm's way in Ukraine. Uh, and that would be politically, I think, quite damaging for the government if that happened. The other thing I wanted to ask about was Belarus, which is you know a country that neighbours both Russia and Ukraine. It's now jumping in to back up Russia. Is that going to have much of an impact? Yeah, it's, this is a really interesting one because Lukashenko, the, the leader of Belarus, Putin has tried to drag him into the conflict on a number of occasions. And there seemed to be an announcement yesterday by Minsk, by his office, that you know, he thought that Ukraine was was planning an attack on Belarus and there was going to be a special joint Russian-Belarus military force formed. Now, it's unclear whether that's actually going to go anywhere. It might stay in Belarus. Um, but, you know, if, if Belarus did get uh, involved militarily in the conflict, to be honest, I don't think it would have an enormous effect. The Belarusian military is not very well equipped and not very well trained. Um, and I think, you know, the Ukrainians have shown that they can more than match it with Russia's armed forces. Uh, and I think they'd, they'd probably make mincemeat out of the Belarusians. Um, and, and that would have significant implications for the stability of Lukashenko's own regime in Belarus because, uh, you know, he's not as assured as Putin and doesn't have as much uh, popular support and control. A lot of the military, in fact, you know, really fundamentally disagree with him. So, uh, you know, it's it's perhaps even a sign of desperation by Putin that he's trying to, to drag Belarus into this conflict to deflect attention away from what's happening in the southeast and in the east of Ukraine where Russian forces are, are in retreat. Well, there's a lot happening and we know that you're going to stay across it. We'll be staying in touch with you. Associate Professor Matt Sussex, thanks very much for breaking all that down for us. Thanks again, Dave. Cheers. And on the text line, someone says America's the only country to use nukes on civilians twice. Most have used them as deterrents. Another person says there are no public protests in Russia because Putin and the Kremlin have prohibited them. You're listening to Hack. COVID is not a thing of the past just yet on Triple J. You know, something huge is happening on Friday. After years of COVID lockdowns, quarantine, mandates, COVID isolation is going. Basically, most people who test positive won't have to isolate at home for five days. There are some exceptions for those who work in high-risk settings like hospitals, aged care. It seems so weird, right? Because COVID isolation has become such a normal part of our lives. You don't even think about it. I'm keen to hear what you do think about this happening. Are you nervous? Maybe you can't wait or you're just confused about where it leaves us with the pandemic. Let me know. You can call in 1300 055536 or message in as well 0439 well, we need to find out a bit more about what is happening. No better person to speak with than Professor Catherine Bennett, an expert in epidemiology with Deakin Uni. Professor Bennett, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. My pleasure, Dave. We're seeing the last COVID rules being wound back. Mandatory isolation for most people will end this Friday. Does this mean the pandemic's coming to an end? Uh, it means we're transitioning out of this more emergency response into something more sustainable. Uh, we know that, unfortunately, the virus is here and it's not going away anytime soon. So it is about trying to 
roll this into ongoing plans that are more occupational workplace-based when it comes to requirements around isolating. Um, that might extend into other businesses, not just the high-risk ones identified, but other employers might decide that their business still runs better if people are isolating so that it's not being you know, shared in the office or if infection rates go up, they might introduce it at, at that local workforce level. So we might still see requirements beyond even those emergency settings. But if people can work from home, then there is also that option. And it's still actually being strongly encouraged that people should isolate um, if they know that they're infectious. Will it make a big difference going ahead? It's, it's unclear because we're not quite sure what removing the rule does to the actual practice. But it, it's also, we're not sure how much of the actual exposure days people have out in the community have in recent times been contained by isolation. So most people are infectious a day or two before they have symptoms. So they might be in isolation for part of their infectious period. There are probably people who are in isolation beyond the time they're infectious. So, you know, that, was, that wasn't adding a lot. So we, we're not quite sure yet how much removing it will put a, a dent in the control that we do have in the population level because we're, we're not completely clear how much it was covering. But we know it wasn't complete and we know it's not disappearing completely. So I think we'll see a step change that hopefully, um, you know, in, in, in terms of the rules moving won't translate to such a shift in terms of the practice of isolation. I guess it leaves um, a lot of people just really confused, especially young Australians who, you know, like say they test positive for COVID, they want to do the right thing, but maybe they've got an upcoming event in a couple of days, the rules say they don't need to be isolating. Then they're thinking, well, should I, shouldn't I? Like, should you still be isolating even if you don't have to? Yeah, I think that's the message. You know, we don't want to, well, firstly, if you've got any symptoms, you recover better if you rest. That's the, the latest sort of information coming out from the clinical side. But also you don't want to put other people at risk. And you might not know the situation of other people. You might think, I'll go out for drinks with friends. I'll just get the tram in so I'm, you know, don't have to worry about driving home. And you don't know who else is on the tram and what their situation is. And so it does pay to be considerate about other people too, even if you're experiencing a, an asymptomatic or a very mild illness. But the reality is most people, probably half based on data coming out of the UK, will not know they have COVID. And so, you know, they've either got no symptoms about a quarter of people or they have atypical symptoms. So they might be feeling off, they might have diarrhoea or they might have headaches, but they don't necessarily have classic COVID symptoms. But if you're feeling well and you know you're, you, you have an infection and you're infectious because your rat's showing you you've got a positive result, really good idea not <laughs> to go out. Yeah. And so I think we've, we've moved beyond the days where someone comes to a house for dinner and says, oh, I nearly didn't come. I'm feeling really crook. You know, we you just say, well, go home again. You know, yeah. I just, I don't think we can afford to do that. Not, not while we've still got the infection rates we have in the population. We've got some messages coming through, thoughts from people. Someone says it isn't required, but that means if you're unwell, you don't go out and spread whatever you've got. That's the personal yeah. responsibility part. This could be bad. Another person says, I'm an ex-nurse. I quit after the pandemic. I think this is really scary. I work in an office environment now and even the common cold spreads like wildfire. And Melissa in Melbourne says, this is idiotic to cancel isolation. So what if I get gastro and I can still come in? If the kids get near 
mates they can go to school. If you're sick, stay the F home and don't spread it. Cold, flu, COVID or gastro, do not spread it. Some really big words there from Melissa. I guess everyone thinks differently about these sorts of things. Um, We've all had a different COVID experience. I read that Australia chucked out about 20% of its COVID vaccine supply last month, Professor Catherine Bennett, because nobody's getting their boosters. What is the situation with that? Because we've got a new Omicron-specific booster that's been rolled out from this week. How's the booster rollout going? And should we be getting young Australians this new booster? So... It varies across age groups and and according to people's risk of severe illness, and and that's not surprising. Particularly, the the fourth dose that's only recommended for people thirty and or it's open for people thirty and over. It's only recommended for people who are fifty and over or people who are immunocompromised. For younger people, there were some that weren't as interested in even having the first booster. But we do know that while the primary course didn't do a whole lot against Omicron. The booster does help. And in fact, the news out now is in terms of even risk of reinfection, you're less likely to have a reinfection if you've got that combination of vaccination and, and infection. But particularly if you've had the third dose, you know, that that can help stop you having those repeat rounds of infection. And that might be important for long COVID. We're still learning about that. People with very mild disease, some people with virtually no symptoms still develop this this sort of longer, more chronic reaction to the infection. And so that's where we would still recommend that first booster for people of all ages who are eligible. It's 16 and over. Only those 18 and over can get this new generation vaccine. That's the level, that's what it's approved for. But I think that there may have been people hanging out for that. The rates are around 70% in in younger adults. Um, But also you're asked to wait till three months after your last dose or your last infection. And of course, we had such a big spike of uh, infections through the BA5 wave. There will be people now who are starting to come due again. So it might have been that people just had to keep putting it off because they had infections and then have to wait another three months and they'd get infected before then. Um, this, you know, their, their time might be coming up now. And now that they've got access to the, the next gen vaccine targeting Omicron, it just gives you that bit of extra boost, we hope. We haven't seen how much it reduces infections themselves, but it, it nearly doubles the neutralising antibodies people produce on, on having that booster compared to others, it's about 1.7 times. So um, we don't we don't know how much that translates to reduction in infection risk, but it's it's certainly expected to give another five to 10 boost, 10% boost in protection against symptomatic illness. That's more severe illness in particular. And just quickly, Professor Bennett, what is the COVID situation like in Australia at the moment? Because people have no doubt lost track of numbers, figures. We were keeping an eye on them every day for years, but now it's easy to to move on and, and to forget what's happening. Are the numbers still really high? They've actually come down dramatically, you know, by three quarters, the hospitalisations as well. Um, in some states, they're, they're, they're very low. And in fact, overall, a lot of the measures, including the number of people testing positive in hospital, doesn't mean they went there for COVID, but that's a good read on background infections. It's the lowest it's been this year. Right. That's great news. And most importantly, we've seen a reduction in those uh, deaths being reported. There's a bit of there's a bit of a delay in those reports. They can be months old. So sometimes, you know, people are reacting to numbers today, but in fact, that's reflecting where we were earlier at the peak. They've come right down. We're down to, you know, one or two deaths being reported from a state over a few days as opposed to what we saw previously, which were very high numbers. So that's that's also 
absolutely what we need to see. And so it does suggest our, our risk is dropping in the community, but of course we're watching the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. They're seeing their numbers go up as they go into winter. So we just have to keep watch on this and, and hope we have a bit of respite now. I think we're, we all need it. The health system certainly needs it. And it'd be good to um, to not have to worry quite so much about exposure and, and managing it for a while. Well, we very much appreciate your insight into all of this. Professor Catherine Bennett from Deakin University, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. And we've got so many messages coming through. Someone says bosses will be having a field day coercing people to come to work when they're infected. Another person, this is simply a disaster waiting to happen. It's not about being considerate. It's the same reason we do not leave it up to individuals to wear a seatbelt or drink driving. Hack. What day is it? Now. Monday. Oh, Monday. Thank gosh it's Monday. My number one day. On Triple J. I want to paint a little picture for you, and maybe that little clip there helped do that already. <laughs> it's a Sunday afternoon, you're sitting at home, basking in the glow of a really fun weekend with your mates, but there's a feeling you can't shake. You're anxious, you're dreading work the next day. Sorry to tell you, you've got the Sunday scaries. And you're not alone. Some new research out of the UK has found two-thirds of adults get anxiety before the start of the work week, and it's getting worse among young people. I want to dig into this a bit more now. With me is Taylor Gardner, a psychotherapist and counsellor at the Indigo Project, which offers online therapy. Taylor, thanks so much for jumping on Hack. Hi, Dave. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you. Look, before we go any further, Sunday Scaries kind of sounds a little cute, but the reality is a whole lot different, right? Absolutely. It's actually almost if we use that term because there is kind of a playfulness to it and I think it makes something that can actually be quite unpleasant a lot easier to talk about. So what kind of things might people feel if they're experiencing the Sunday Scaries? Basically, when um, the Sunday scaries kick in, an individual may feel, I guess, a sense of overwhelm, dread, anxiety, uh, usually, like you've mentioned before, heading back to the work week on a Sunday evening. And what kind of impacts can it have on your health long term? So in essence, it is a form of anxiety or stress. And um, I would go further and say that it's almost like mourning the end of the weekend mixed with some low-grade existential dread. So regardless of how we label or describe the experience, psychologically, it's a response to some sort of perceived threat. So the threat itself tends to vary for each individual. For example, a threat might present for someone as if they didn't take full advantage of their work weekend and they may experience a bit of regret. Um, Another may worry about their workload and performance for the week ahead. Um, But whatever the threat is, the shared experience is often that we may jump to unhelpful conclusions or thoughts and even underestimate our ability to navigate the challenge, the challenges that we uh, see upcoming. So I think that, you know, that that does have a pretty big impact other than the obvious that stress in general is not great for um, overall health or well-being. Um, I guess the impacts aren't always the Sunday scaries themselves, but the side effects um, of what we do to cope with them. Yeah, for sure. We've got some messages coming through on this, people definitely relating. Someone says, Sunday Arvo anxiety is real. I'm a teacher and Sunday nights are a total anxiety punish. Another person says, it's because the weekend isn't long enough. And someone else says, why must we be cursed with the concept of time? Yeah, exactly, Reese. It's real punish on all of us. I want to know, Taylor Gardner, what should people do if they're struggling with this feeling? 
Um, look, I think combating it looks different for everyone. And I think some of the common examples that are thrown around is, you know, maybe meditating or getting some exercise and really taking some time out on a Sunday to unwind and even perhaps prep for the Monday ahead a little bit. So you're kind of, um, you know, feeling in control of, of your next morning. But really, if you find yourself really struggling with the Sunday scaries, it could also mean that there are other things at play. So, for example, your Sunday scaries might actually be a sign you're experiencing burnout, uh, even imposter syndrome or struggling to set boundaries, even that you're feeling a bit unaligned with your current role or workplace. Um, so a big thing to do is actually um, seeing a therapist. You know, that can be a really beneficial way to unpack any of this and more. Um, and actually, I do want to note that on the Indigo Project website, you can actually filter out therapists based on a range of different focuses, including anxiety, performance anxiety, burnout, fear of failure and career difficulties, making it really easy for you to find your perfect match. Uh, we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. People really impacted by this. And some people are saying, you know, this is just a thing that everyone feels, right? And I guess a lot of people do feel it. It's just the extent that we feel it and what it could mean in the long run. It was great getting your insight into this, Taylor Gardner from The Indigo Project. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Take care. And someone on the text line says, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Another person says, I used to get real bad anxiety on Sunday nights about working the next day, changed employers, and that's disappeared. That was from Daniel. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks to all of our guests and everyone who contributed to the podcast. A lot of people wanting to talk about the Sunday scaries. It's a real thing that a lot of people feel and you're not alone. That's the thing. A lot of people probably think, oh, is it just me that's feeling a bit overwhelmed? Nah, the statistics are out and they're showing that most young Australians and young people around the world are feeling this. That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.